You are listening to Faith Church's sermon from this week. We are a church that is committed to loving Jesus for life and loving others to life. We hope that this message encourages you to follow Jesus with your whole heart. Good morning, Faith Church. You have no idea how many times I almost said that at Bethany Church. (laughs) It's so good to be back home. Um, As Ruth has told you, um, today we're going to be talking a little bit about success, and I've had a pretty big success um, that I've undergone recently, which is that Rachel did, in fact, say yes to marrying me. I know it's a wild surprise for you that know Rachel. Um, It's not like she... We adore each other very, very much or anything. So, But we are talking this morning about victory, and we are talking about what it takes to win. Um, and I know as a 22-year-old that there have been some times when I've won and some times that I've lost. And, and me and my mother were talking just last night about the fact that I'm not a very competitive person. I've not been on many sports teams that were like team-based. I did cross-country running. I know it doesn't look like it. I used to do swimming. I used to do all sorts of different kinds of things, but they were always individualistic. Um, And that's always just the way that I've kind of viewed competition. It's an individualistic thing. It was very me-centric, but I, I didn't really care if I won or lost. But something that I always had learned ever since I was a kid, and you can tell by the lovely youth pastor portrait that I've put up on these screens that it is from the tortoise and the hare that victory never comes quickly. And you're probably all familiar with the the story of the tortoise and the hare. It's a a tall tale from such a long time ago. The tale kind of goes like this where you have a hare, it's a jackrabbit, and a tortoise. They're planning to race from one location and all the woodland animals come out and they're, they're taking bets, right? They're saying like, oh, well, I bet that the, the jackrabbit's going to win. And the reason why, you know, you're, you're getting like over-unders. You're getting like the stat reports that you get like on ESPN. Like they're watching Sports Center to see whether the tortoise or the hare is going to win this race. And the Sports Center guy's like, well, Chuck, I don't know. The rabbit's much faster. He's much stronger in the legs. He's smaller. He has a less, less body. He doesn't have the shell on the back of him. I don't know, Tom. I just think that it's going to be a, a wild day for the races with the rabbit. I just don't see how the tortoise thinks that he can compete. For this reason, and many more, right, all the other animals are saying, they're like, I'm going to go on my sportsbook app, and I'm going to put my bet on the rabbit to win. And if you need another lesson today, besides what I'm teaching you, do not gamble, because if they would have gambled on that, they would have lost. Because as we know, the tortoise beat the the hare, because slow and steady wins the race. But by all accounts, that's not supposed to happen. We look at all the races. If you looked at anything on on Woodland Sports Center or if you looked at anything from National Geographic, you would know that the rabbit is supposed to go faster. But this tall tale was invented to teach us a lesson, to teach us the lesson that slow and steady wins the race. And this morning, I'm here to teach you about a different kind of victory, Because in this message, it it talks a lot about if you have the will to win, you're not going to rush it. You're going to kind of go slow. But this morning, there's another story, and it's not a tall tale. It's It's a true story. It's a story from the Bible. It's a story about Paul the missionary on his second missionary adventure to Ephesus. And as he was there, he figured out what it what actually was the will to win. 
And he kind of taught everybody about that, and I'm going to teach this message to you guys all. And you will learn how to have victory over things in your life that kind of push you down, sin, temptation, evil spirits, things like that, all are, are all detailed in this tale, and I want to kind of exposit it for you guys this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Acts chapter 19. We're going to be spending the morning there, and we're going to start with verses 11 and 12. It says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left him, and the evil spirits came out of them. So now to give you some context, this was Paul's second missionary adventure. He'd already been to Ephesus. He'd made a couple of friends on his first round to, Ephes- on his first round to Ephesus. But as he was encountering them in Ephesus the first time around, they re- he realized that Ephesus was a nation or a, a city that was perverted with so much idolatry and so much witchcraft that when they heard about Jesus for the first time, Jesus wasn't just one God. Jesus was one of many gods the first time he came. They said, well, why can't we just put Jesus next to the Baals or next to Artemis, I believe, was their, their god of choice. If you continue reading, Paul actually even encounters um, some of the idol makers. And there's a ride in Ephesus after the events of this passage that we're delving into today. But a lot happens in this passage, and something that is interesting is that Paul has returned this time to correct theology. He has come to demonstrate the power that God has, and in doing so, he's done it in an extraordinary way. And so the translation that I'm coming from is from the ESV, but um, from the Greek, it can translate multiple ways. It translates to words like unusual or typical, the way that he's doing this miracle. And the reason why it's unusual or typical is that apostles or, or believers in Jesus that would also come around and would do exorcisms and stuff, it wasn't typical for them to like rip up rags or pray over rags and give them to people and say, here, do it this way. The typical way that they would do it is that they would go to somebody's house and that they would put their hands on them and say, uh, I, I cast you out in the name of Jesus, cast out demons in that way. Or they would go over to them and they would lay hands on them and say, and now you will be healed in the name of Jesus and they would be healed. That's the typical way of doing this. But Paul was allowing these people, his friends in Ephesus, to take these scraps of clothing, to take pieces of his apron and stuff like that, and to exercise their friends in the name of Jesus. And I think that this is interesting because this ties in with a whole big theme in this story is that Paul does not, Paul does not hold God in this box of what makes sense to Paul. What makes sense to Paul is going and touching and doing this thing, but that's not God using, that's not Paul using God's super majestic powers or anything. That's Paul doing what the Spirit wills him to do. And so here, the Spirit is willing him to do something a little bit different, to take these rags and to rip them and to do it this way. Now, why might he do it this way? Well, the Ephesians are superstitious people. They believed in both gods and they believed in magic. They believed that perhaps the power of God was something that could be harnessed and could be used. And so here we have God using his Spirit to guide Paul to do this extraordinary miracle, this not typical miracle for one reason, so that God could display his power. And here's the thing is, God displayed his power in one way, but he could have done it another way. 
And he could have been very, very right in doing so. He could have displayed his power through wrath, right? And he could have said, listen, guys, my spirit, my name, the name of Jesus is not to be used as a magic word to get rid of these evil spirits. He could have punished them for their idolatry, but instead he displayed extraordinary power through a new merciful kind of healing. He had an understanding that these people needed a different approach to understand that God was powerful. And he sets up this basis that God is powerful, but this does not, this, and this should not be portrayed and seen that God is okay with them taking these rags and doing this thing. That, that God is okay with them viewing these rags as something that is powerful or something that is like this magical cure-all thing. God's not, in fact, happy with this, but he's bringing attention to the fact that he is powerful, and he's bringing attention later on in this passage to a problem. And this is the first little thing on your, your sermon outline. The problem is, is that these people, and, and people in general, desire to take their personal understanding of God and their understanding of his power and to wield both of them in the name of idols, right? They're taking this, these rags and they're saying, well, I'm going to use you know, the name of Jesus now, and if that works, so that's working now, but if this doesn't work later, then maybe I'll use Artemis, or maybe I'll use a number of the other Greek gods, Zeus, um, Aphrodite, I'll use whatever works. And now they're seeing that, okay, Jesus works. So that's step one, but the problem that is arising is that they're using God, who he is, and his power, and he wielding it against their problems in the name of their idols. But something actually happens, and it's pretty interesting, in Acts 19, verses 13 to 14. It says, Then some itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over who had evil spirits, over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. And so here's some other stuff that we need to unpack. Just to clarify, Luke, disguise, uh, he describes these Jewish exorcists as itinerant Jews. This means that they're doing pretty much the same thing that Paul is doing, but on the missionary side of things. Itinerant means traveling or missionary. So these, these, these are these Jews that are going from town to town, finding people that were demon-possessed and casting them out using Jewish rituals and stuff like that. And I think that these Jewish people were having a lot of the same problems that the, um, that the Ephesians were. Because they didn't believe in Jesus to be Christ. They believed they were, in fact, Jewish. And they were referenced as being Jewish. And the reason why we know that is because their father was a high Jewish priest. So that wouldn't really go well. It would be, it would be a, a major faux pas for them to come home and be like, hey, Dad, we believe in Jesus. It would be tough but that still doesn't disqualify them. The reason why I'm pretty sure and why most scholars are pretty sure that these guys are just Jewish and not Jewish believers is when they use the name of Jesus, they say, I, use, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Right? I adjure you by the Jesus whom this guy proclaims. And so, in fact, their placement in the story suggests that they are much like the Ephesians, that they have seen these ragged things that were going on with Paul, and they say, hey, that might work. It suggests that they're interested in the power and the results of what Jesus' name does, but not the effects, not the transforming power, not the surrendering of themselves unto Jesus. No, they wanted 
all of the power and none of the responsibility. If you've watched Spider-Man any time in your life, that's just not how it works. This suggests that they were just interested in power. But before we give these two guys a hard time, let's remember that they were trying to do something noble, right? A lot of times we say the ends justify the means. That's something that we say a lot of times. The ends justify the means. If I have to use the name of Jesus to accomplish my goals, I'm going to do that. If using, the, if, if using this name Jesus will get these demons out of this guy, th- then that's okay. And oftentimes we, we also think that stuff, and we're doing you know, good works just the same as they are. We are trying to do good. We're trying to make disciples of all nations. We're trying to baptize people. We're trying to do our, our duty to God's body and take care of the church. Right? We're trying to help the poor. We're trying to help the widowed. We're trying to help the disenfranchised, the foreigners. We're, doing, we're trying to be holy as God is holy. Do all the things that God has commanded us. And sometimes in these things, we come across a danger. And this is the second thing on your sermon outline. The danger is that Jesus might become a weapon that you wield in your life rather than you becoming his servant. See, these Jewish exorcists didn't commit themselves to the teaching of Jesus, nor did they care to learn. They merely desired to have the power of Jesus. They didn't want to be used by Jesus. They wanted to use Jesus. Is a very complex thing, but this is something that happens in the church all the time. We need not look very far to see this happening in our society today. Look at either side of the political spectrum and you will see somebody that is quoting the Bible out of context, not so that the word of Jesus might be proclaimed, not so that people could, of all nations could come to know who Jesus is and to be baptized, but so that they could win the vote, right? Wielding the name of Jesus to have power, not being welled by Jesus for the power of God to be displayed on this earth. And we do this too. We cherry pick scripture that we like and we wield it against one another. We do this all the time. We, we view the Bible as a sword, right? We view it as this single-edged sword that has a hilt that we put up against the people that we don't like or the sins that we don't like and we'll slash it down and we'll say we are doing God's work because this is exactly what it says in God's word. It says that God's word is a sword, that God's word is our weapon, and we need to go and use it against all of those dirty sinners out there. But that's not exactly what God's word says, right? We're cherry-picking little parts of God's word. Because here's what God's word says. We hold the Bible as a sword, and we slice it with our enemies down. But the Bible says this. It says something different. It says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. I don't have this on the slides. Don't worry, guys. It says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who must give an account. That's the way that the Bible is being described by the Bible itself. The Bible is not being described as this weapon that Christians are to wield against other people for their benefit, for their will, for their thing. The word of God, the spirit of God, Jesus and his name are not weapons to be wielded against other people. They're weapons to be wielded against ourselves and against other people. 
when we open up the Bible, the Bible is a living thing. It says it is the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces through the soul and the spirit, through joints and marrow. It pierces through absolutely everything and that no creature is hidden from it that no creature is outside of its sight, and that they are all naked and exposed to it. When you read the Bible, you should be hurt by it. The Bible should be sharp to you. The Bible shouldn't be something like a nice leather hilt for you to grab onto and use to bash people over the head with. The Bible should cut you just as much as you cut others with it. And that's the beauty of it. Because when it's used that way, people can see that you're not wielding a weapon against them. That in fact, you're saying, here, look, I'm bleeding too. Let's bleed together. Let's bleed. Let's both be struck down so that our Father can bind us back up and heal us and sanctify us and make us a little bit more like that servant that he wants us to be. Make us a little bit more like Jesus. But when we misinterpret the Bible, when we cherry pick, when we wield the name of Jesus, when we wield the Bible, when we wield the Holy Spirit in such a way that we think that it's just this magic word that we can say, to make devils disappear, to make our problems go away, and to make that person shut up when we want to win an argument. That's not what the Word of God says the Word of God is. The Word of God says that it is to be used as a token to say, look, I have problems too. Look, I'm bleeding too. Look, this pierces me deeply too. But we, can, but we both have hope because of the name that I'm proclaiming. This Jesus is not a magic word. It's not just another God. It's a hope for the fact that now, if we were apart from Jesus, we would be bleeding out together. But because we have Jesus, we can be bound up together. We can be healed together. We can have new life together. We can have everlasting life together. That's the hope that we proclaim. And the danger is, is that we never proclaim it. And instead, we strike people down not knowing that we ourselves are bleeding out day after day after day that we misuse God's word. And this can be uncomfortable for us because we see the success of people that don't do it right. People use God's word and they still get elected. They use it this way and they still get elected. People may have wielded God's word against you without wielding it against themselves and won arguments, gotten you kicked out of social circles. People wield God's words and do irreparable damage to people with mental health issues, create mental health issues. People have victory doing this. So why bother doing it the right way? Well, we're going to learn why bother as we continue reading in Acts 19. Verses 15 to 16, it says, The evil spirit answered these itinerant Jews that were talking and that were invoking the name of Jesus without believing in him. It says, But the evil spirit answered them and says, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit leaped on them mastered all of them and overpowered them, so they fled out of that house naked and wounded. It's pretty tough, right? I mean, like, as a 22-year-old boy, I'm reading this, I'm like, that's, that's kind of, like, gnarly. Like, this dude just put the smack down, Hulk Hogan style, all over these guys. Like, and it's, it's pretty insane because they lost. They used the name of Jesus, and they lost. And we see this evil spirit dominated, dominated these people that used the name of Jesus. And this might cause some confusion. You would think to yourself, well, Landon, how is evil supposed to work like that? Doesn't it say that evil flees at the name of Jesus 
when Jesus' name is brought up? When, how come these people didn't, how come we see the other people that had the rags and stuff, they prospered, and they did pretty much the same thing? Why, why didn't it work for these guys? It seems inconsistent. How can we have any confidence in the God that we serve if when these people try to invoke the name of Jesus, it doesn't work? But then those other sinners that are just ripping off tattered clothing, it worked for them. How can we have any consistency? But this passage shows the heart behind these questions. These questions are the same questions that these Ephesians, that these superstitious people are asking. These superstitious people that just want a word to say that causes all their problems to go away. They just want to say Jesus and poof, gone, without any relationship, with any, without any conversion, without any thought, without any prayerful consideration. They just want a magic word, Jesus, poof, spirit's gone. I'm healed. And sometimes, yes, that's exactly what we also want. Speaking the name of Jesus is effective. It's not a not powerful name. It is a very, very powerful name. But the name is not a magic word. It's God's will that does the exercising. It's God's will that does the healing. It's God's will that does the protecting. And it is God's will that nothing that is inside of God's hand can be clenched outside of it. That, not, that when you have a relationship with Jesus, you cannot be touched. But so often we say, well, if I just say the word Jesus, if I just pray or if I do these things, then the powers of darkness will flee. But I'm here to tell you that it's the will of God that mandates those things, not your will. Your will is not a winning will. Your will is a will that is bleeding out, even if you don't know it. It doesn't matter how much willpower you have to overcome that sin in your life, you're never going to do it unless if you say, okay, God, what is the will that you have for my life? I'm going to stop saying, Jesus, make me stop sinning, and I'm going to start saying, Jesus, do whatever you want to do with me. I'm a sinful person. I'm bleeding out here. I need you to heal me. I need you to do whatever you have for me. If that means things that we don't necessarily think are conventional or typical or comfortable for us, then get in the same boat that Paul is in. What's comfortable for Paul is going to people's houses and putting his hands on them and saying, you are healed, you are exercised. But he allowed them to take the strips because God said, trust me, this is my will. When those guys get jumped down the street, something's gonna happen. That's, that's really, really crazy. For you, it might be something like, well, I just say the name of Jesus and I expect my depression to go away. When God, is, when God has willed for you to go and seek help. Maybe it's the same thing with addiction. Well, I, if I just keep praying over it, then maybe God will, will just make it go away. But God has been saying, no, I want you to go into a rehab. No, I want you to go to a meeting. Maybe it's you saying, well, Jesus, if I just pray over my friend, and Jesus is saying, no, I want you to go and I want you to talk to them. We don't get to decide how Jesus uses his power. We don't get to decide how God uses his power. Could God use his power? Could God make your addiction go away? Could God make your depression go away? Could God bring everybody around you to him? Yes, he could. He could do it, and he could do it if that was what he wanted. But what he wants is so much better. His ways are so much higher. And, and when, in that verse, by the way, Isaiah, we often use it, well, his ways are higher than our ways, so I don't have to understand them. No, the word higher in Greek doesn't mean 
more intellectual, doesn't mean hard to understand. It means higher in every aspect of the word. It means better, greater, more intelligent. You can't understand it, so just submit to it. You can't control it, so just let go. You just follow what you're being told. When Jesus, and so here's the thing. How can we take comfort in this? What we have to do, the solution to this problem that we have is that the power of Christ does not come from these right words. This is, this is what the um, point is. One of the points is the solution on your uh, sheet. It says the power of Christ does not come from saying the right words. It comes from having a genuine relationship with him. And Jesus stops becoming a higher power and starts becoming the higher power, starts being the thing that you put all of your hope and trust in when you stop wielding it at your problems and you start allowing yourself to be wielded by Jesus himself. That's when you get healed because you don't know why you're bleeding yet. You're not the surgeon. Only God is the surgeon. It would be like you walking into a surgical procedure and saying, yeah, I have a stomach, I have pain right here, but God, don't cut me open because I don't think that that's, that's the way that you should do it. I think you should go through the mouth because I don't really like knives. So just go through the mouth. And God's saying, I need to cut you open. I need you to go through, I need you to go through this other thing first. You know how ridiculous that is if you were to go in and talk to a surgeon that way? If I were to go in and, and I were, if, if Pastor Brett, when he was having his heart surgery, said, you know, you know what would be really easier, Doc? Like, I don't really want you to cut me open. Just kind of reach down through my throat and grab out my heart and then, like, do all of it and then put it back in. That's, and, and it's, it's funny, but it's the same exact thing. It's the same exact thing. God has a purpose for what he's doing in your life that is so much better than if you were wielding all the power. With him wielding the power and him giving you direction, you would do so, so, so much better. So how do we do this? How do we apply this? How do we apply this solution? How do we allow ourselves to have a, genu a genuine relationship with God? How do we stop wielding God's power and instead allow ourselves to be wielded by God, by his will? Well, it says this in Acts 19, the response to these naked Jewish exorcists running down the street screaming. Imagine just all around this avenue, just, you know, four dudes just screaming naked, running down the street all bloody. And then this is what the people did in response to it. This became known to all the residents of Ephesus. <laughs> of course it did, right? Both Jewish and Greeks knew about this. And fear fell upon all of them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled or was lifted up. Also, many of those who were believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts bought, uh, brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to, to increase and to prevail mightily. So this is interesting. This is a powerful moment. And I don't want us to miss this. These were the same Ephesians that said, well, Jesus is just as any other God. And now, these are, the same, these are the same Ephesians that wanted that magic word, right? That wanted to wield Jesus' name, that wanted to wield everything that they learned from Paul in, in the way that would serve their idols, in the way that would serve their passions. That they would wield out their problems and their problems would go away. And what they did was not try to control it. What they did was not try to get as much information as they could about what happened here, and then they could try it again a new, different way. No, what they did was they feared, and then they lifted up the name of Jesus higher. 
They lifted the name of Jesus to a place higher than that of a spell and higher than that of a God that they knew. They knew that Jesus was something more. They knew that Jesus was not just simply a magic word anymore, that Jesus was the word brought to life, that Jesus was the everlasting word, that Jesus was the only word, and that Jesus was a word not to be used, but a word to use them. That Jesus was not a God that they would throw at an issue, but Jesus was a God that would use them to throw and to do the will of him who was who sending them. They confessed and they renounced their evil practices, right? They confessed to each other. They said, hey, I've been serving these idols, and that's, that's just wrong. We all got to do this. Not one of them was, was left doing this by themselves. They were all talking to each other and saying, we all got to do this. You see how those guys got beat up? It's because they were wielding that in the way that they weren't supposed to be doing it. We all got to do that or else we're going to get beat up like that. We're going to get beat up even worse. They burned their magic books that estimated to about 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, I'm not a math whiz, but I do know how to read a commentary. That, in today's economy, is five to seven million dollars worth of money. Burned. That's the sacrifice that they had. If they, if they still thought that Jesus was a name to wield, if they still thought that his words and that scripture was to be wielded in the way that they wanted it to do, if they were still committed to their will to win and not Jesus' will to win, they wouldn't have done that. They would have said, okay, well, maybe we just need to study more about Jesus. But instead of studying more about Jesus, they said, I don't get it. I don't know why that worked and why this didn't work. All I know is that Jesus is the most powerful because Jesus was known by that spirit. Paul was known by that spirit. But the ones that are wielding the name of Jesus, that are wielding the power of the spirit, that are wielding this, weren't known. And so later in the chapter, we see that this didn't happen to everybody. Later in the chapter, we see that there are people that still clung to their idols and they clung to their power, but ultimately they rioted and they rioted and they rioted, and then what happened to them? Nobody serves Artemis anymore. How many of you guys have seen the Temple of Artemis on Fifth Street Highway? Nobody, right? It just doesn't exist. They had failed. That is a losing will. Yes, sure, they kicked Paul out of town, but then eventually that religion just died. Why? Because there's no power in it. It failed time and time again. And this is where we end our story. We end our story with two types of people who do two different types of things. We end our story with people that cling and that riot and kick Paul out of town and say, listen, that name of Jesus, it didn't work. It didn't work for those people. And then you had the people that said, well, no, it does work. It only works for the people that know Jesus, who have a relationship with Jesus, who talk to Jesus, who submit themselves to the will of Jesus, who say, it doesn't have to be my way. I don't have to go over and talk to you and pray. I can rip off my clothes if that's what God wills, and that's still going to work. I could do it whatever way God calls me to do it, even if it makes me uncomfortable, and it's still going to work. One group of people, when they encounter demons, when they encounter things in their lives, the response of demons will be, well, I know Paul, and I know Jesus. Who are you? And you're going to get beat up. Right? You're going to get whipped up and down the street by your problems, by your sins, by the powers of darkness in this world, but the people that come into submission of Jesus who know Jesus and speak that name 
under the, under the direction of the will of God, the people that do those things, the demons don't even get a word out. That's when the demons flee. The demons, that's when you start winning. You don't start winning when you wield the power of God. You start winning when you allow the power of God to wield you. When you allow God's will to wield you. The solution is simple. The application is simple. Do what the people in in Ephesus did. This is on your sheet. This is your last point. Surrender in confidence to the will of Jesus. What does it mean to surrender in confidence to to the will of Jesus? It means to sit under biblical teaching. That doesn't just give you ammunition. That doesn't just give you a a sword to wield at other people, but gives you a sword to wield even at yourself. So then you can come to know that the Bible is not just something to bludgeon people with, but that the Bible is something that when you bleed, you bleed together and relate over with people. It means that any sacrifice to any idol, anything that warps your mind, it means getting rid of it. It means surrendering that thing. It means, even if it's worth five to seven million dollars, going out and saying, hey, I don't need that. I need to do the will of my Father. I want to win. I want to have the will to win. Not my will, but your will. This was modeled for us on the cross. Jesus could have insisted on his way. There's a popular song, he could have sent 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. But Jesus wouldn't do that. And why wouldn't he do that? Because Jesus said, not my will, but your will. Because not my will doesn't provide victory. My will, at that time, Jesus' will, when he was saying, I just want this, this cup to pass from me, his will at that time, he knew that that wasn't what God wanted. He knew that that wasn't the way. He knew that the best way was to give up his will to God. It means truly fearing the Lord and fearing the power that he wields and understanding that only he can save you. Understanding that it's not just saying the name Jesus, that it's not just attending church, and it's not just leading Bible study, getting up here on praise team, getting up here in a pulpit and preaching. That will never save you. And I'm preaching this to myself this morning. Working for God won't save you. Allowing God to work through you will bless you. Allowing you to have a relationship with Jesus will bless you. It will save you. Understanding and submitting your will to the will of God, that is what, that is how you win. I'm going to quote one of my father's favorite theologians, Elvis Presley. We watched the movie last night. It was really good. This is, in a, this is from a movie that Elvis did. He was never really a popular movie star. But it ties full circle. He says, Remember the tortoise and the hare who had that famous race. Speedy hare wound up nowhere, and Slowpoke took first place because he had confidence. And obviously the message of that lyric is to encourage you to have confidence within yourself. Because the message of that tall tale, that, fish, that fictitious tale, is that as long as you have confidence and that you're persistent, you will win. But the real story, not just the fairest tale, but the real story that we just learned this morning, has something different. Don't have confidence in your own will. Have confidence in the fact that the will of Jesus is a winning will. 
don't have confidence in yourself, but have confidence in the fact that if you surrender your, your will to the will of God, that no power in hell, no scheme of man could touch it, can touch you, can get to you. There's no reason to fear demons, sin, trouble, darkness, when you know Jesus as your Savior, when you submit yourself to his will, because the demons know who you are. They already have you pegged. You're a threat. But, and, and, and that doesn't mean that you won't ever have trouble. This isn't a prosperity gospel. Trouble will come your way. But here is what happens when you have the will of God. Yes, trouble will come your way. In this world, there will be trouble. There will be sins. You will encounter demons. You will encounter darkness. You will encounter pain. You encounter all of these things and more. But since you have interchanged your will with the will of Jesus, because if it was just your will, those things would beat you down, leave you naked, run through the streets of the temple. But since you have interchanged your will with that of Jesus, since your problems are not the priority and following Jesus is now the priority, you can walk with the confidence of the fact that Jesus, the one true God, walks besides you. That though this world gives you troubles, you are being accompanied by the one who has overcome the world. Don't take my word for it. I took those words right out of his mouth. Don't take my will for it. Don't take your will for it. Take Jesus' will for it. It's a winning will. The victory is already won. You are all bleeding out just as I'm bleeding out. Instead of causing more wounds, let's look at our scars together and say, look how God has healed us. Look at where God has brought us from and look at where God is taking us just by submitting to what he has for us. Look at the victory that's on the horizon. It might look dark today for you. It looks dark today for me every once in a while. But what keeps me going is knowing the fact that I've given up what Landon wants for Landon a long time ago. And when you give up what Craig wants for Craig, what Austin wants for Austin, what Tammy wants for Tammy, what Lori wants for Lori, when you give up what you want for you and you take your will, you apply your will and say, get rid of that. I want Jesus' will in my life. That's when you have the will to win. Pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we have so often used your name, used your word to accomplish our own goals. And those goals might be noble. Just like how those itinerant Jews went around, they were trying to do a good thing. They were doing something that they believed in, trying to end suffering in the world, trying to end people that had demons, trying to heal people using your word. But God, you had orchestrated everything in that scenario to show that you are not just a power to be wielded. That Holy Spirit, you are not a thing. You are not an it. That the Holy Spirit does not come upon you. But he walks with you. He empowers you. He fills you. God, allow us to let go of our wills, no matter how costly it is, even if it's worth millions of dollars. God, allow us to let it go, to cling on to your will, because your will is a will that has victory over victory over victory. God, that victory is on the horizon. You've already won it. You've already said that it is finished, and we are just waiting for you to come back and to proclaim that victory to every tongue to every nation, to every tribe. And as we wait, God, allow us to wait with a will to win your perfect and good will. In your name we pray. 
Thank you for listening to this message. We hope it encouraged you in your walk with Christ. You can find out more about Faith Church at wearefaithec.com. 